Good morning, church. My name is Stuart McRae. I have the privilege of working on staff and being an elder here. Please open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes. If you have one of the blue Bibles, that's page 556. If you're a little unfamiliar with where that might be in your Bibles, it's right after the book of Proverbs, which is uh, just about in the middle, the middle part of your Bible. Kids, good to have you in here this morning. Maybe you guys picked up one of these yellow pamphlets, and this is an opportunity for you to engage with the sermon, as well as to draw some really neat pictures. So enjoy that. All right. Well, we are in Ecclesiastes. If you'll go to chapter 6, we left off last week concluding with verse 9, so we're going to start this week with chapter 6, verse 10. So follow along with me, please. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, because this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of wisdom is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. <clears throat> vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. As we've been going through Ecclesiastes, it's hard to miss the point that the preacher has been trying to convey. Life under the sun is hebel. The phrase under the sun is not a reference to earth, but it's a perspective. It's a godless worldview. It's life lived on earth with no view above the sun into the heavens. And the Hebrew word hebel is the English word vanity that we see in Ecclesiastes. It pictures something that is fleeting like smoke or wind. So Ecclesiastes is saying that apart from God, everything is like a smoky object that when grasped for, it immediately vanishes. And so if all is vanity, what is the good life? 
philosophers throughout the ages have wrestled with this question. And depending on what era you look at, you'll, you'll find different answers. In our current relativistic culture, existentialism is king. And existentialism essentially says that you get to determine what the good life is. And, and so the answer of what is the good life will be different from person to person. And the sad irony of existentialism is the, is the resulting existential crisis. When the answer to the question, what is the good life, is left in the hands of, of finite and fallen people, the result will always end up with second-guessing, unsurety, and anxiety. There's a reason why a culture that is dominated by existentialism is also filled with people on Prozac. Our text this morning revolves around the all-important question that we read in verse 12. Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? It's the question that we all want an answer to, but that none of us can answer. And, and the world will only offer you under-the-sun perspectives, which in the end is just hebel. Only God has the answer to this question. And he tells us in our text that the good life is about living by God's above the sun wisdom. Indeed, everything about the good life from God's perspective is counterintuitive to what the world will offer us. The good life is about living by God's above the sun wisdom. So here's how we're going to look at this text we're going to break it off into two parts. 6, 10 through 12 is going to set this up and ask the important question. And then in chapter 7, we'll find the preacher's answer. The good life is about living by God's above the sun wisdom. Okay, let's get started. Follow along with me. Chapter 6, verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? The preacher is trying to convey to us something theological about both God and man. And that is, God is sovereign and man is finite. God is sovereign and man is finite. God is sovereign. Whatever has come to be has already been named. In the Old Testament, going all the way back to the beginning in Genesis, naming something is equated with existence and dominion over that which is being named. And so when God named things in creation like day and night, sky, etc., God was demonstrating his sovereignty over these things that he brought into existence. So here the preacher is saying that whatever exists was sovereignly given its name by God long ago. In other words, whatever happens in the present was predetermined in the past. This text also teaches us that man is finite and it is known what man is. Literally, and it is known that he is Adam. The Hebrew word Adam, that's where we get our English word Adam. 
This looks back to the substance from which man was created, namely, dirt. Man is finite. He is mortal. He is weak. He is that which was created. And God knows this is our nature. God is sovereign and man is finite and therefore the implication is, end of verse 10, that man is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. That which is created cannot dispute with its creator. Mere mortals cannot take to task the sovereign creator of the universe. The Lord spoke of this very thing in Isaiah when he says, Woe to him who strives with him, who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does this clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Later in the New Testament, Paul echoes this very sentiment in Romans 9 so as to claim that the creature is in no position to argue with the creator in regards to his sovereign rights in dispensing his justice and his mercy as he sees fit. Verse 11. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? It is futility for mere created beings to argue with the creator. Why? Our text gives two reasons. Verse 12. First, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. And two, who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? More foolish talk doesn't bring clarity. It only adds to the confusion because finite man doesn't have the answers to the questions he's asking. You see, the preacher is asking rhetorical questions here. He already knows the answer, and that is, no one but God alone. No one but God alone knows what is good for man. And no one but God alone knows what the future holds. These questions only have answers from above the sun. Arguing with God about the way life is or, or searching for the meaning of life with an under-the-sun perspective that is a, a godless worldview only adds to the enigma of life. Indeed, apart from God, to spend one's life on a search for the meaning of life is itself a study in futility. You see, the preacher's aim in these verses is to have us come to grips with our finitude, our weakness, so much so that when we come to the place of trying to make sense of what the good life is, we won't succumb to existential thinking, which only puts us at the center of our universe. Rather, the preacher wants us to come to the end of ourselves and turn to the one who created all things and knows all things and thus can grant us the wisdom, the wisdom from above, to live the good life 
here below. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to turn to the one who has the answers. The rest of our passage, as we enter into chapter 7, we're going to be exploring this answer. The good life is about living by God's above-the-sun wisdom. Now, a couple of quick points to help us navigate the text. What is wisdom? The Hebrew word for wisdom means so much more than just knowing stuff. It also refers to skill. So think applied knowledge. So if we were to give a definition to wisdom, it could sound like this. Skill in the art of godly living. Skill in the art of godly living. Two, the connection between verse 12 and the wisdom that's found in chapter 7, the connection is found in this word, good. The same Hebrew word used for good in the first question in chapter 12 is the same Hebrew word that our Bibles translate as better in these next couple of verses. So if we were being really, really wooden with the way we talked about these better than statements, we could say that one thing is, is gooder than another. Finally, this isn't merely the wisdom from the preacher. But this is wisdom from above, from God himself. And God, through the preacher, is going to reveal to us five different pieces of wisdom from above for living the good life here below. All right, let's get into it. Follow along with me, starting verse 1, chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. God's first piece of above-the-sun wisdom for living the good life here is take life serious. Take life serious. You might have noticed that these verses talk a whole lot about death. But the principle behind this, this death talk is that life is precious and that life is brief. And therefore, we are to adopt a serious perspective for life. We could sum up all these better than statements like this. Seriousness is better than frivolity. Seriousness is better than frivolity. You want wisdom for living the good life? Take this to heart. You are going to die. You are going to die. We are going to die. This world is full of frivolity to blind us to this truth and full of means by which to superficially suppress this truth, you and I will die. God tells us in verse 2 that the reason it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting is because this is where we're all going to end up. And the text continues. The living will lay it to heart. That is, those who are alive will live in light of the reality that death is inescapable. You see, thinking about death leaves 
no room for a flippant attitude about life. Rather, it, it arrests us with the serious and weighty perspective that God says is wisdom for living the good life here below. Life is a deeply serious matter. And when the, when the profundity of death has had its effects on our hearts and minds, then, then the proverb in verse 1 makes sense. A good name is better than precious ointment. Those who have a serious perspective on life will value a good reputation over the riches of this world. You see, a, a precious ointment will certainly smell nice to those who are within its vicinity, but, but its smell will soon be gone and be forgotten forever. A good reputation, however, is better. It spreads out far and wide and makes a lasting impression. The Hebrew word here used for name gives the idea of a lasting reputation, a good name that outlasts life itself. Now, a good reputation can take a lifetime to build, but, be, can, but can be ruined in a foolish moment. And this is why the day of death is better than the day of birth. The, the day of death brings much excitement and hope for a life well spent, but the harsh truth about birth is that this excitement is fleeting, and then uncertainty swoops in, until when? Until the life has been lived and the final period of death has been put on the end of that life's story. The day of death is better than the day of birth because a good name is not securely established until the day of death. Someone who still lives may still ruin it. Thinking about death is wisdom from above because it produces the serious perspective that God wants us to have as we live this short, brief life. There's something reorienting and refining about thinking about death and sorrow. Verse 3 says, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. There's nothing wrong with laughter. I love to laugh. But the wisdom here is that sadness has a refining influence on us. When we think about death, our perspective on life changes, doesn't it? A couple weeks back, Doug mentioned that a longtime friend had, had passed. And he also said that the day before the news came about his passing, that he, he and Robin had a disagreement that he didn't completely resolve. But Doug said that when the news of his friend's death came, what seemed like such a significant issue the day before was put into right perspective and seen as frivolous in comparison to the serious reality that life is precious and short. Now, verse 4 makes it plain that what we're talking about is the distinction between wisdom and folly. To choose wisdom is to think of life and take it as serious. 
Verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. This isn't the only place that the Bible speaks of this. In Psalm 90, 12, it says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The Bible speaks of the heart as the causal core of our being. It's the reason behind why we, we do what we do, say what we say, think what we think, love what we love, desire what we desire. And so this verse is saying that the wise person allows the life-changing perspective of death to have a transformative effect at the very core of their being. And of course, the verse says the fool does the very opposite. The fool allows the frivolities of life to govern the core of their being. The above the sun wisdom that we're receiving here is framed in terms of the good life while we're here living in an under the sun world. And as New Testament believers in Christ, this is wisdom for us too. Death will also have a transformative effect on the way that we think about life. On the side of the cross, we know that death doesn't have the final word. No, Jesus has defeated death through his death and resurrection. And when we take the eternal joy that has been gifted us in Christ Jesus and mix it with the serious perspective on life that we're called to adopt, we end up with what one author calls serious joy. He writes, Serious joy does not wait for hospice care in the house of tears. It's offered to us right now as a necessary ballast for faith in a fallen world. As believers, this side of the cross, we're to be people who hold a perspective of serious joy right now as we live in this under-the-sun world. If you're here this morning and you aren't trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, death does have the final say. But it doesn't have to. Today, this morning, right now, you can cry out to God and confess your sins and your neediness your desperate need for a savior. And I urge you to consider the, the good news of Christ, of the gospel, of his sinless life and his substitutionary death and his victorious resurrection. So God's first piece of above the sun wisdom for living the good life is take life serious. Consider that it's brief and precious. We're all short timers here. And let that thought have a transformative effect on your hearts and minds. There's more wisdom here. Let's look at verses five through six. Follow along with me. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. The second piece of above the sun wisdom for living the good life is pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. And the principle that's being taught here is that Holiness is better than empty laughter. Holiness is better than empty laughter. Verse 5 is saying that it is wisdom 
counterintuitive wisdom from above to hear the correction, the reproof, the rebuke from someone wise, even just one, as the text suggests. And it is foolishness to hear the empty songs of praise and flattery that condones sin from a choir of fools. In fact, verse 6 goes on to say very poetically that the noise that comes out of the fool's mouth is just hebel. It's just vanity. It's empty. The soundtrack on the road to hell is filled with the empty flattery of fools who mean to muffle and desensitize you to your sin. And God's above the sun wisdom for living the good life is counterintuitive to the wisdom of this world. God is calling us to embrace the blessing of rebuke. Pursuing holiness by embracing rebuke is counterintuitive wisdom to be sure. But there's grace to empower you to pursue this above the sun wisdom. And some of God's grace is seen in the Bible's promises of blessing to those who embrace rebuke. Whoever re- heeds reproof is honored, Proverbs 13, 18. And prudent, Proverbs 15, 5. He who listens to reproof gains intelligence, Proverbs 15, 32. Loves knowledge, Proverbs 12, 1. Will dwell among the wise, Proverbs 15, 31. And is on the path of life, Proverbs 10, 17, because the rod and reproof give wisdom, Proverbs 29, 15. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life, Proverbs 6, 23. Friends, by God's grace, don't run away from a faithful brother or sister who, by loving you, is willing to correct you and expose your sin to you. It would be unloving of God to leave us blind to our sin. It is the love of God to send us a faithful brother or sister in Christ who will gently expose our sin to us and then remind us of God's grace in the gospel for forgiveness and change. Oh, friends, by God's grace, run towards faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who will speak both truth and love because redemption is found in rebuke. God's above the sun wisdom for living the good life is pursue holiness. Pursue holiness by embracing rebuke from another brother or sister who has skill in the art of godly living. There's more wisdom. Follow along with me starting in verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than it's the beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirits. Become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. God's third piece of above-the-sun wisdom for living the good life is have restraint. 
have restraint. The principle that's being conveyed here is that restraint is better than rashness. Restraint is better than rashness. And the text presents two reasons to lean into God's above-the-sun wisdom of having restraint. The first reason is found in verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Oppression in the first line can and probably should be taken as extortion, and this certainly parallels better with a bribe in the second line of this verse. And what we're to understand from this proverb is that even the wise are corruptible when it comes to money. Even the wise are corruptible when it comes to money. Money has a way of corrupting the heart. This is why Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so the call is to have restraint, self-control when it comes to money. The second reason to lean into God's above-the-sun wisdom to have restraint is found in verses 8 through 10. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Verse 9, be not quick or impatient or rash in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Verse 10, say not, why are the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Impatient, prideful, presumptuousness is always the danger for those that do not lean into God's wisdom of restraint. It's foolishness to give way to impatient, prideful presumptuousness. Verse 8 tells us that, the, that only the patient in spirit, due to God's wisdom of restraint, are willing to endure a matter and not make knee-jerk reactions. Indeed, they are willing to withhold judgment until they see the end of a thing. Verse 9 tells us that only the wise person who is patient due to God's wisdom of restraint is willing to withhold judgment until the outcome of a matter is made known. You see, it's the fool who instead becomes sinfully angry due to his impatient, prideful presumptuousness. And finally, verse 10, looking back and comparing the past as better than the present only exposes our folly of impatience and a lack of self-control and being able to have a long view of life. You see, only the wise person who is leaning on God's wisdom of restraint will wait for God's providence to fully unfold before they make a judgment. And when we come to the New Testament, we discover that restraint or self-control is not a virtue to be pursued, but rather it's a fruit of the Spirit to be born in the life of the believer by the cultivating work of the Holy Spirit. We see in Galatians 5 that self-control, this, this restraint, it's a fruit of the Spirit, not a fruit of you or I. 
And so, if you want more restraint, if we want more self-control, we need to cry out, cry out and ask the Holy Spirit to bear his fruit within us. And the encouragement is, is that when you see self-control, when you see restraint in your life, it is evidence of the empowering work of the Holy Spirit within you. The question for all of us is, is are we asking the Holy Spirit to produce this fruit? So God's third piece of above the sun wisdom for living the good life is have restraint. There's more wisdom here. Follow along with me as I read verses 11 through 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of, not, the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. God's fourth piece of above the sun wisdom for living the good life is value wisdom. Value wisdom. The principle that's being conveyed here is that wisdom is better than money. Wisdom is better than money. And what we'll find here is that wisdom has an advantage over wealth. Wisdom has an advantage over wealth. The verse 11 on the surface of things can be surprising. But if you have the ESV, that text is more or less right. Wisdom is good with and inheritance. Wisdom is good with an inheritance? Doesn't Proverbs 16, 16 say, how much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver? And isn't wealth just vanity? Nebel? Yes. In and of itself, money is just smoke and mirrors. It is nothing to be idolized. That being said, money is a necessary thing while here on earth, and wisdom is better when it's coupled with it. Why? Well, money has a practical use and provides some practical protection for us in this life, and when you couple skill in the art of godly living, then it is handled in ways that are honoring and pleasing to the Lord. But wisdom has practical protection as well. Wisdom protects the soul. We've heard even this morning of some of the protection of wisdom. It helps us to view life with a serious perspective. It compels us to pursue holiness. It urges us to have restraint, and wisdom will preserve our very souls. Now, commentators don't agree on much when it is coming to the passage that we've been looking at this morning, but they do agree with one thing and on one thing, and that is the preacher does not have eternity in view here. Remember, this is God's above-the-sun wisdom for living the good life here in this under-the-sun world. Wisdom, that is skill in the art of godly living, will protect your very soul while you're here navigating the trials and travails in this under-the-sun world. Having God's above-the-sun wisdom is an advantage. The question is, is, do we see it that way? 
When, when we navigate life, where do we turn to find our answers? Maybe it's inward. Maybe you turn to Google or Wikipedia. Maybe you turn to a friend for pragmatic advice. Where do we tend to turn? Not, not, not where should we turn, but what's our instinct? Where do we instinctively turn? Think about it. Because the answer to that question will reveal what we believe is of real advantage. God's above the sun wisdom is an advantage. And in the Bible, we're told that we can find wisdom when we turn to God's word, when we cry out to him for more wisdom. And yes, when we turn to a wise counselor, one who has skill in the art of godly living, who will simply just point us back to God's wisdom. God's above the sun wisdom for living the good life is value wisdom. Our text offers us one more piece of above the sun wisdom from God. Follow along with me as I conclude our passage, starting in verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. God's fifth and final piece of above the sun wisdom for living the good life is trust God. Trust God. The principle that's being conveyed here is that submission is better than rebellion. Submission is better than rebellion. In the preacher's final analysis, God's above-the-sun wisdom for living the good life in an under-the-sun world that is filled with both joy and adversity is to trust God. To trust that he is providentially bringing all things to pass for our good and his glory. See, all the way back in the beginning, in the first few verses we looked at, we we came to see that created man cannot dispute with the sovereign creator. And now we see that created man cannot change what sovereign God has providentially brought to pass. What is the providence of God? Here's the answer from the Heidelberg Catechism. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. You see, in the midst of adversity, the preacher's advice isn't to rebel against God or to try to change what he has brought to pass. No, the preacher says, who can make straight what God has made crooked? And the answer is, no one. Rather, the wisdom from the preacher is to, in humility, 
consider that God is providentially bringing all things to pass. And the implication from the preacher is that we're then to, in submission, trust him. You see, even, even the wise do not know the future. And one of the mysterious purposes of God's providence is, quote, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. God's providence blinds us, even the wise, to our futures. Why? So that, due to our blindness, we would be driven, ushered into trusting him. After immediately asking and answering the question, what is God's providence? The Heidelberg Catechism goes on to ask, what does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? It answers, the benefit is that we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. No doubt in a group this size there are some of you who are going through significant adversity right now. No doubt in a group this size, there are some of you who are wildly anxious about your futures. And no doubt, if that's not you, it will be you soon. And the preacher would ask you to consider God's providence and then trust him with your life. You see, this God, our God, who is providentially in control of all things, is the all-good, all-loving, all-wise God. Therefore, everything he does is good. Everything he does is loving. And everything he does is born out of his perfect wisdom. We can trust him. Now, this doesn't mean that you can never cry out, why? Nor does it mean that you're supposed to be walking around at times with some sort of false happy face. But in trusting God and in his providential control of all things, we're to derive great comfort and peace. It's fitting that this would be the last piece of God's above-the-sun wisdom for living the good life in an under-the-sun world because for the believer in Christ, there's, there's no greater comfort than to know that God will successfully work all things together for our ultimate good. That is, for our conformity into the image of Christ. So come and Trust God. It's his above-the-sun wisdom for living the good life in an under-the-sun world.
what is the good life? It's the question that we all want an answer to, and yet none of us can answer ourselves. Only God has the answer. And we've seen this morning that the good life is about living by God's above-the-sun world. The good life is about living by God's above-the-sun wisdom. Let me leave you with this. There is grace to live out God's above-the-sun wisdom. If you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you've been united to the very one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Indeed, Christ is the very embodiment of God's wisdom and who perfectly lived these things out. Well, Jesus knew he was a short-timer, and it influenced his perspective on life as he lived with great intentionality and great urgency as he moved toward his death on the cross. Jesus is holiness. He never once sinned but obeyed the Father perfectly. Jesus is perfect and set apart. There is none like him. Jesus showed perfect restraint. The Lord had power to do many things at many times, but rather than being rash, Jesus always showed perfect restraint. Oh, Jesus valued wisdom. Not only is he the wisdom of God, but in Luke 2.52, we read that he grew in wisdom. And Jesus trusted his Father perfectly. In submissive trust, he went to the cross and died for our sins. This is the one to whom we are united by faith. This is the very one who now empowers you to live by God's above the sun wisdom so you can experience the good life in an under the sun world. Let's pray. Oh Father, thank you for this wisdom. It is your gift to us. It is your kindness to provide these words for us so that we would know what the good life is, what it looks to live in it. We live the good life living by your above-the-sun wisdom. We pray, Holy Spirit, would you help us to continue to think about these things and apply these things and live in the good of these things? Would you help us to actually live out this wisdom in our everyday lives? You help us to reflect on this text more and more and let your life-giving word have its effect on our hearts. Thank you for your holy word. Thank you for your son. We pray this in his name. Amen.